There are those who have the grisly job of being executioners. Oftentimes in history, the identity of the executioner was hidden by a, a black mask. We have such people today. They administer lethal injections. They hot chairs. There is a place, biblically speaking, for capital punishment. And thus there is a need for someone to administer the lethal dose or to put someone in that chair. I can imagine that for someone in that position who has any hint of conscience that one of the most horrific, one of the most soul-shaking things that could ever take place is to realize after the fact that the person one has just executed is innocent. As we continue on in our study of the cross and the events surrounding the cross, we will see the testimony of such a man. In Luke chapter 23, we begin with verse 44. Luke 23, beginning with verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. In this text today, we're going to focus most particularly upon the centurion. We do see mention of the reaction of the crowd in general here too the death of Jesus Christ and to the signs that accompanied his death. It says in verse 48, the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. Now, when it says the whole crowd, this is a figure of speech to refer to the majority of the people there. Obviously, this is not speaking about the Pharisees beating their breasts and saying, oh, what have we done? But it is referring in a general sense to the multitudes that gathered around to see Christ crucified that very possibly even some of those who had mocked him who had jeered at him when they saw the signs the darkness and you realize it was a supernatural darkness it was not the time for a solar eclipse being the full moon of the month furthermore this was a three hour complete blackening which was not characteristic of a solar eclipse Therefore, this was known to be a supernatural darkness. And then, 
Jesus crying out these words. It is finished. And crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And there being an earthquake that follows that where the ground shakes and the people feel this. They see this and they recognize it. And think about this. Yes, there are these physical signs, but there was a spiritual war that was being waged while Jesus was on that cross that was palpable. I mean, the air must have sizzled with electricity even considering the spiritual battle that was raging at that time. As Jesus is triumphing over the forces of darkness, as Jesus is bearing the justice of the Father upon all of the sins of all those who would ever believe on Him, the tension in the air could be cut like a knife. And these people witness these signs and it says they beat their breast. They cry out. They return. They return to their place. Many of these pilgrims who had come in for the Passover feast. All but those with the stoniest of hearts were moved by the death of Jesus Christ. Notice it says also all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We have record in John, and we've already looked at this when we looked at the sayings from the cross, that that the apostle we believe to be the apostle John and the mother of Jesus were there at the foot of the cross. They were close enough during the time Jesus was being crucified that Jesus could look down and say, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. But then this text tells us that there there was another group of people that stood afar off. And it says, his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee, these acquaintances may not have been the other of who we call the disciples, later called apostles, but these would have been people that were disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, and the women who followed him from Galilee. And in a parallel account, it gives us some some names there. And it says there was Mary Magdalene who was there, Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph and Salome, some of the same women that ended up going to the tomb to care for the body of Jesus and discovered that he was risen from the grave. It says they stood afar off and they viewed these things. One quick note just by way of refreshing memory for those who were here, and it's been several years ago, we were in Luke chapter 8, in the beginning of Luke chapter 8, where it says that there were certain women who followed Jesus and that they provided for him out their livelihood. So, we ask the question, where did Jesus get funds to be able to travel as an itinerant preacher from village to village? The scriptures specifically tell us, Matthew chapter 8, that there were some women, mentions one woman by name particularly, Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Chusa was the steward of Herod's household. Herod, who was evil. Herod, whom Jesus was eventually sent to on trial. And it was the steward of his house, the wife of that steward, who was funding the ministry of Jesus when he walked on the earth. So, I won't preach the sermon, but we've talked about the role of women. We've talked about these women in particular from that text. 
But suffice it to say, these women were there, they were watching as they saw Jesus crucified. But now we focus in upon this man, the centurion. And we ask several questions here. And these questions, most of them tie into the senses. We have five senses, don't we? We can see, we can smell, we can touch, we can taste, we can hear. Let's ask these questions. First of all, who was this man? Secondly, what had he done? But then let's ask, what had he heard? What had he seen? What had he felt? And then what did he say? So who was this man? Well, our text tells us that he was the centurion. And notice it says, so when the centurion saw what had happened. Now, as a centurion, obviously, this man was a Roman soldier. And he was a soldier over a certain number of soldiers. So he was a leader, like a captain. Children, think about this for a moment. Listen to this word, centurion, centurion. How many soldiers do you think were under his care? Do you recognize another word that we use that would indicate a number? Century. Hear that? How many would that be? How many would it be, children? It'd be 100, right? We call a century, period of time, 100 years. Well, that's a Latin word, and it indicates 100. So the centurion was a soldier who was a captain in charge over 100 men. So we know that he was a Roman soldier. He was a leader of 100 Roman soldiers. Most likely, he was a Gentile. We have some historical record of this man. I can't vouch for all the accuracy of some of the historical details surrounding him, and I'll mention that in a moment. But history tells us his name was Lajanus, which means a man with a spear. And history tells us that this was the very soldier who thrust the spear into Jesus' side. Whether that is fully accurate, I cannot say, but thus the historical count. I'll go ahead and mention right now the reason that I cannot say that these historical details are exactly factual is because in the same writings which record some of the details about this man, it does say there, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that he was converted and that he began to travel and minister regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. There were a group of Jews that hated him, that they sent word back to Pilate that Pilate had this man, Lodginus, beheaded, that his head was tossed in a dump or a junk pile. There was a woman traveling to Rome who was blind and her son was with her. She was traveling there hoping to be healed of her blindness, this account says. It says that when she arrived there that her son died, but then she received a vision in which the Lord Jesus and Lodginus, this soldier, appeared in the vision. And Lodginus said that if you go to such and such dump heap, you will find my head. And there you can take my head and clean it up and bury it along with your son and you will receive your sight. And so this story then says that she went 
as a blind woman, she rumbled, rustled through this dump heap that she touched upon his head, found his head, cleaned his head. She was given sight. She buried him and that this man was praised. You see, I don't give much credibility to that historical account. And it is passed on through some of the churches, such as the Roman Catholic Church, in which there is much mysticism. Okay, But is it possible that this man was named Loginus? Yes, that is possible. Well, this we can also decipher from the text. Notice in verse 47, it says, So when the centurion, the centurion, in the Greek language, the word for centurion here literally indicates the man who was in charge of the execution. He is the one who was in charge of executing Jesus. He was also in charge of guarding the cross, the place of execution, to make sure that no one came and tried to get Jesus down off of that cross. Now, it's a bit of a trivia question, I know, but it's a biblical, it's a biblical uh, question. How many soldiers were there with him guarding the cross? Can you think of any passage of scripture which might give an indication of how many soldiers were with him? Now, he was in charge of 100 men, but he didn't have 100 men with him at this time. I think we have a decent indication from Scripture how many men were with him in guarding the cross. Any, any ideas? Well, when we think about the account in John chapter 19, in verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took Jesus' garments and made how many parts? Four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. So, that would give indication that there were four soldiers there because they each received a part in the dividing of Jesus' garments. And remember, there was the robe woven from top to the bottom, and they cast lots for that and thus fulfilled the scriptures. So, we have some details there about this man. He was a Roman soldier. He was a Gentile. He was a leader of a hundred Roman soldiers as a centurion, possibly named Loginus, man with a spear. He was in charge of executing Jesus. He was in charge of guarding the cross. He had four soldiers there with him doing this. Now we want to move and consider the question, what had he done? What had this man done? To do this, I need to get a book out. I have a helpful uh, harmony of the Gospels that puts together the Gospel accounts and helps to see the full picture of what had taken place. And we're going to walk through some of these Gospels and consider what had this man done. First of all, you may be wondering, what do you mean by the question, what had this man done? What I mean is this. He was in charge of overseeing the execution of Jesus. So we ask, as the man in charge, what had he done? And you realize the way that authority works, authority militarily especially, is that there is a degree to which the man in charge is responsible for the actions of the soldiers under his charge, right? And we're going to see as we examine this account 
some of the things that were done to Jesus, then we can say, at least by extension, that this man, this centurion, had either directly ordered these things to take place or had not refused to see that they took place. He did not order his soldiers not to do these things. Okay, So we say these are things that he did in virtue of his authority. So we remember after Jesus was taken to Pilate, Pilate and Herod, Herod sent him back to Pilate, proclaimed his innocence, but because the Jews cried out for his innocence, said, let his blood on, on our children, Pilate washes his hands and says, I find no fault in him, but I'm guilty of his blood. And then, in Matthew 27, 27 through 31, also recorded in Mark 15, 16 through 20, we see what this centurion in charge of the execution of Jesus had done. It says, then the governor's soldiers, and the centurion would have been under, under the authority of the governor. He was the one put in charge of this execution. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters. What did they do? They gathered the company around him. They stripped him. They dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They placed a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit at him. They took the reed and kept hitting him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of this robe, they put his clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This would have all been under the authority of this centurion. What did they do as they went out? They seized the man, Simon of Cyrene, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry that cross. What did they do when they arrived at Golgotha, the place of the skull? They crucified him there. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. They sat down and were guarding him there. There was a sign lettered and put on the cross. They probably were the ones who climbed the cross and they put this sign on the cross to proclaim Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. They took his clothes and divided them. They cast lots for his garments. You realize the centurion was there. He could have at any time with many of these things, commanded his soldiers not to do them. You realize that. Now, it was his duty to see that Jesus was crucified. But he would have had authority even to see that his soldiers did not take the garments if he so had chosen. He could have ordered that that not be done. He could have ordered that they not mock Jesus in the way that they did. That was not commanded protocol for execution. That they would robe someone thusly, that they would crown someone thusly, that they would mock someone thusly. He could have forbidden it at any time, yet he did not. What had this man done? He had done all these things by extension at the very least. At the very least. Then we ask ourselves the question, what had he heard? Who was he? What had he done? What had he heard? Very possibly, he had heard the trial before Pilate. Very possibly, he had heard the Jews screaming, 
for the death of Jesus. Very possibly he had heard Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. What had he heard? He had heard Jesus' statement to the women as Jesus was dragging that cross. Remember, the women of Jerusalem came weeping and Jesus said, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children because there's a great time of judgment that is coming upon this place. He most likely would have heard Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. He was there. It was his job to guard the cross. It was his job to see that Jesus didn't escape. It was his job to see that Jesus was nailed there. He probably would have heard everything that Jesus said while he was on that cross. He would have heard Jesus say, in the midst of his agony and torment, where he's literally having to pull himself upward with all his strength to gain a breath, to be able to utter the words, because you realize you can't speak if you don't breathe. Try holding your breath and see if you can speak. You can't do it. You have to exhale to speak, don't you? The way it works. But in the midst of that agony and torment, Jesus provides for the care of his mother. The centurion heard that. He heard Jesus speak to the thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. He heard Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard Jesus say, I thirst. He heard Jesus cry, It is finished. He heard Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And think about this. He heard Jesus, while the soldiers are nailing him to the cross, say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What had he heard? He had heard Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, uttering all of these words. Who was he? What had he done? What had he heard? What had he seen? What had he seen? Had he seen Jesus rebellious and raving at those that were persecuting and tormenting him? No. Had he seen Jesus hateful and demented, lashing out, declaring his innocence, fighting against it all? No, he had not. Had he seen Jesus despairing and desperate? Broken with absolute dejection and despair to the point of being unable to speak? No, he did not. What had he seen? He had seen Jesus resolute, caring, forgiving, triumphant in the end. Yes, he had heard Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he'd seen Jesus in his agony. But he had heard and he knew that when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, after having cried out in triumph, finished, that's not the way that these men die that we put on a cross. They die by suffocation, slowly, slowly being suffocated to the point where they cannot speak. 
and it takes everything that they have just to hold themselves up enough to force a little bit of air into the lungs so that they can breathe and they use every drop of that oxygen just to stay alive. And he knew that was not Jesus. So what had he seen? He had seen a supernatural Jesus. What else had he seen? A supernatural darkness. He was there when the darkness descended. He knew that this was not a natural darkness. Those around knew. They knew that this was supernatural. It was supernatural. I mean, imagine this for a moment. What you know? What if we're here right now? Here you are. There's light shining in through the windows, right? What if all of a sudden, out there, it's like God flipped the light switch and it's dark, just like that. Boom. And it's like that for three hours. We'd say that's not natural. That's not normal. I didn't hear anything about a solar eclipse going on, but. We go out there and the sun is obscured, but it's not a solar eclipse because you can tell it's just a, you know, that that faint darkness, that kind of fuzzy darkness there in the solar eclipse, and you can look up with a little box and you know and paper and all that stuff like it did as a kid, you know, and you see the outline, the shadow of the moon across the sun. No, it was just boom. the switch was flipped. Now, yes, it it probably was not such a complete darkness that no one could see anything at all. Probably not a total, complete blackness because we have so many things that took place while Jesus was on the cross. They could see the cross, at least find it so that they could offer him to drink and all of these things. But there's clearly a supernatural darkness, the darkness like that of night. This is what he had seen. Who was this man? What had he done? What had he heard? What had he seen? What had he felt? He felt the shaking in the earth. He felt the earthquake. And again, with the supernatural nature of darkness and what was taking place on the cross and the tension in the air, he would have recognized this was a supernatural shaking of the earth. And I believe that at that time when he's feeling these things, they're shaking that is going to the depths of his soul. As the darkness is descending, I think the light is beginning to dawn in the depths of his very soul. This is no ordinary man. This is no guilty man. What have you felt? The shaking in the depths of the earth that corresponded to the shaking in the depths of his soul. And this leads us to this final question regarding this man. What did he then say? What did he say? Notice, first of all, in our text in Luke, and in verse 47, it says, When the centurion saw what had happened, notice this, it says he glorified God. 
He glorified God. The word in the Greek language there is the word doxa, the word for glorified. Doxa. Does that sound familiar to you? There is a song that we sometimes sing here, and many churches sing, and it has that word in it, doxa. What do we call that one? The doxology. What is the phrase? Let's even take a word. What is the word that is repeated over and over and over again in the doxology? What's that word? The word praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above. He heavens. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The word doxa is also translated as praise. And in this case, glorified. He glorified God. Now, as we consider this man, we consider what he says. I'll say right off that there's some question about was this man truly converted? Was he recognizing who Jesus was as a saved man? Recognizing Jesus as the unique Son of God and the uniquely righteous Son of God? Or was he as a Roman recognizing that these were supernatural events and declaring that this man was divine in the sense of being a son of the gods and that this man was innocent of the crime that was committed against him. Okay, And as we go and we consider what he said, we're going to seek to try and answer that question to the best of our ability. I will say this, that even amongst uh, the Christian commentators, that... It's somewhat split between the two. Did this man really, out of the depths of his soul, as a converted man, acknowledge Jesus as the unique son of God? Or did he believe Jesus to be a son of the gods or divine in that sense? Did he really recognize the true righteousness of Christ? Or was he simply proclaiming that Jesus was innocent? We'll consider that a little bit further as we go along, but... Consider this, though, what it says here. It says that he glorified God. He glorified God. It doesn't say that he glorified the gods. Now, we could ask ourselves the question here when it says he glorified God. Does that mean that he gave glory to God? You realize that even the wicked glorify God, ultimately. And Romans speaks about the fact that, that even a lie can bring glory to God because it magnifies the truthfulness and the righteousness of God. But it seems to me as I look at, at this and as I consider it in its context and the way that it's worded, it says he glorified God. It seems to indicate here at the very least a, a praising of God. And notice it doesn't say he glorified the gods. If he was Roman and followed the paganism of most Romans, he believed in many gods, right? It doesn't say that. It says he glorified God. He glorified God. What else do we see that he said in this text? Certainly this was a righteous man so he glorified God said certainly this was a 
righteous man. Now that word righteous there in the Greek language can be translated as innocent, but it can also be translated as righteous in the sense of pure and holy and righteous. Okay? Now, the idea of if he's declaring that Jesus is just and pure and holy, that would imply innocence as well, wouldn't it? If he were not just, then he wouldn't be innocent. Or in this case. Uh, so, at the very least, the innocent is there. At the, at the lowest common denominator level, he is declaring that this man was innocent. And there you think about that. We've talked about what he had done and all the things that he at least permitted his soldiers to do in the mocking of Jesus. And at this moment, he is acknowledging this was an innocent man. This was a just man. And so he is recognizing, he must be recognizing in the depths of his soul, the way that I permitted him to be treated was abominable. It was horrific. Because this truly was a just man. A righteous man. A righteous man. Again, I, I lean towards him having heard Christ's statements and sayings on the cross actually having been convicted in spirit and the Holy Spirit working in his heart and being regenerated. That's what I lean towards as I put together these things from this text. But at the very least, we can say this, because of everything that he had seen, that he had heard, based on what he said, he recognized that Jesus was no ordinary man. And he recognized that Jesus was innocent. And he recognizes, if you look over to a parallel account, in Matthew 27 and verse 54. He recognizes the nature of Jesus, at the very least, as a son of God. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. So Matthew 27:54. Notice it says, "So when the centurion, there's our man, and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying." Now notice this. This account is teaching us very clearly. It wasn't just the centurion who made this proclamation that is about to come, but that the soldiers who were with him also make this proclamation. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Another account, Mark 15, 39. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. It says, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And then it mentions the women who looked on. Now, why... Would I even say that there's some question about whether or not these soldiers 
truly believe Jesus as the unique Son of God, one of the questions centers around the fact that in the Greek language, that there is no definite article which would read emphatically in the Greek, this man was the Son of God. Okay? The definite article is not there. But, as we look at Scripture, and there are multiple other references in Scripture, the definite article does not have to be there for the context to indicate that it is definite and that it would be the Son of God. So you don't have to have the definite article for it to be definite. The context could indicate that. One of the arguments that the Jehovah Witnesses make regarding John chapter 1 centers around this issue of whether or not there's a definite article in the Greek language which would indicate the as compared to a. Okay? So some people would say, well, there's no definite article, so what they're proclaiming here is these soldiers is that surely, truly, this man was a son of God. Compared to definite article, truly this man was the son of God. You, you can hear the difference there. That's a big difference, right? You know, it'd be a big it'd be a big difference, you know, if somebody for somebody to say, Ryan Butler is a son of Kathy Butler compared to Ryan Butler is the son of Kathy Butler. There, there's a difference there, clearly. Especially when we're talking about the issues of Christ and who he is. That's a big difference. Back to John chapter 1 and considering a little bit of this faulty argument that Jehovah Witnesses use. When it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They say, well, when it says the Word was God, there is no definite article there. So, that should read, and they put it in their faulty translation, if you've ever looked at it, the, the world translation of the scriptures. It says there that he was a God. Okay, because they say, oh, but there was no definite article. But there's a big problem with that. The big problem is that there doesn't have to be a definite article. And if they're going to be consistent and say that every place in Scripture where there is not a definite article, you need to put the word A there, then they're going to have to take verse 6 in John chapter 1. It says, There was a man sent from God. And that one doesn't have the definite article in the Greek either. And they're going to have to say, There was a man sent from a God. But they don't. And even in their translation, they don't. So you see, they're not consistent. They're biased. And they've tried to go through and expunge every reference to the deity of Christ from the scriptures. But this to point out, clearly we read this, there was a man sent from God, and we don't say, oh well, in the Greek language there is no definite article, so that should read, there was a man sent from a God. No, the context is clear. Sent from God himself. Whom we call God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So, considering once again the statement of these soldiers and our centurion it does not follow that he 
said that truly this man was a son of God just because the definite article is not there. And as I put together and think through this, when it says that he glorified God, that he says truly this was a righteous man. And when he says that this was the son of God, I am hopeful that this was a statement flowing out of true faith. Now, when people come to faith and true faith, does it necessarily mean that they are systematic theologians at that point? Not necessarily, right? Most of us wouldn't consider ourselves a systematic theologian and say, I don't know if I'd call myself that. You know, I'm trying to understand the scriptures as best I can. But the fact of the matter is, when most people come to faith, they mostly have very little knowledge, don't they? And, you know, you think about it, he says, well, truly this man was the Son of God. You know, you wonder about that statement, that he was the Son of God. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus lived on after this death. But I will say this, I am hopeful at least that these statements were coming from a heart of faith that then went on to be instructed more fully in the doctrines of Christ, and to understand what had taken place when he was there overseeing that crucifixion. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And realizing, if, if this man did, if he comes to this faith, can you imagine him realizing late in his life exactly what was happening and God's sovereignty in it all as he was there and in charge of seeing that Jesus was nailed to that cross until he died. Wow. It's earth-shattering to think about, isn't it? But he gives, he gives the testimony, and think about this, the significance of this. The scriptures are inspired by God, right? They are God-breathed. The amnesis. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God-breathed. The scriptures also teach us very clearly that there are far more teachings of Jesus and far more things that happen in various situations than are recorded. So God selectively reported exactly what he wants us to have. God specifically recorded that the final word surrounding the events of the cross here in that immediate context was spoken by a Gentile, a Roman centurion, who had been in charge of the very crucifixion itself. And it says, He glorified God. You think about that. Christ had come as a light to the Gentiles. Christ had come to break down the middle wall of partition so there would be no longer Jew or Gentile in Christ Jesus. And you think about the centurions, and think about another centurion, Luke chapter 7. 
Remember he had a servant? Remember he told Jesus, he said, I'm a man with authority and I say to those under my authority, go and they go. He said, you but speak the word and I know that my servant will be healed. And what did Jesus say about that man's faith? He says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. He says, I have not found any Jew out there that has this kind of faith. That he would be so believing in me, he would say, I know you don't even have to go. All you have to do is speak it, and my servant will be healed. And here we have another testimony of a centurion. And it's a testimony that glorifies God, that this was the Son of God, and that this was a righteous man. Now, as we consider this, let's ask ourselves some questions. Who are we? Who are we? This man was a soldier, wasn't he? Do you realize you're a soldier? I told you the other day that you're priests. You are priests. If you are in the kingdom of God, in this new covenant era, all those who are believers are priests. But let me tell you this. Whether or not you are a believer in Christ today, you are a soldier. And you're a soldier engaged in a spiritual battle. You may not believe it, but the reality is, the scriptures say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a spiritual battle that rages 24-7, nonstop. There is spiritual warfare going on in this building right now. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's up here with me. There's a spiritual war that is raging Constantly, and every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth is engaged in that warfare. And how many sides are there? How many sides does Jesus say that there are? There's just two sides. Jesus said, You are for me or you're against me. You know what? He's the only one that could rightly say that. I can't stand up here and say, You're either for me or against me. Because you could rightly say in some instances, well, no, I'm for you in that matter, but I'm against you over here. Because <laughs> I agree with you there, but I sure disagree with you there. But Jesus can say, and it not be a false dilemma, a bifurcation. You want to use that big, strange, logical word. Jesus can say, you're either for me or you're against me. Why? Because there are only two spiritual camps in this world. We are all soldiers. We're in a spiritual war. No one is neutral. No one is a non-combatant. So the question that I ask for today, for today is, who is your father? The scriptures say that if you are not saved, your father is Satan. And you are doing the will of your father. And you are engaged in war on his side. Children, are you hearing me? 
Whose side are you on? There's only two choices. You're on Jesus' side or you're on Satan's side. Who is your spiritual father? There are only two. It is either God the Father or it is Satan. Whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on God's side or on Satan's side? If you are not on God's side right now, you can be if you will believe in Jesus. If you will hear his words from the cross and you will repent of your sins and say, I know that I am sinful, God. I know that I have done evil against you. Would you please forgive me of my sins? And I'm going to trust Jesus to save me and make me right with you. And I'm not going to try and do good things to make you happy with me. But I'm going to know that Jesus did good things so that I could be saved. And I'm going to put my trust in him. You can make that statement of faith even today in your own heart. You can be on the side of God. If not, you are fighting in the camp of the enemy. And it doesn't matter how good you look on the outside. You may look really good on the outside. But you know what, children? Your parents know that you're not perfect. Just like you children know that your parents aren't perfect, right? Hey, guys, all we have to do is live close enough to one another for any period of time to spend any amount of time with one another. And I know that you're messed up and you know that I'm messed up. And so let's not pretend, people. Let's not pretend. Let's just admit it. We're messed up. We need Jesus. Whose side are you fighting on? But this I can say. I know so many of you people so well. And I know that you're fighting on the side of Jesus Christ. I know you're soldiers in His army. And I know that you're messed up. And you know I'm messed up. But we're in this together. And we're fighting for the glory of God out of love for the captain of our salvation. Right? Praise God that we're in this together. Because since we're messed up, we need one another even more. If we are perfect, if I'm perfect, I don't need you. If you're perfect, you don't need me. None of us are perfect. We're soldiers, but we're flawed soldiers. But if you're here today and you are a soldier fighting in Satan's camp, you're not one of us. Because you're not part of the body of Christ. You're not spiritually in fellowship with the Father and with the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit as the rest of us are. But you can be if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures say whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It will be saved. We're soldiers. One way or the other. I dare say that probably all of us today here are Gentiles in the ethnical sense. But even at a deeper spiritual level, I ask this question based on Galatians chapter 3. Are we spiritual sons of Abraham and blessed with believing Abraham? Because you see, God has opened the door 
the light has gone forth to the Gentiles. Jesus stood there and proclaimed, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go out to all the nations and make disciples. God is calling some in from every kindu, from tribe. Are you of the faith of Abraham and blessed with believing Abraham? Even as a Gentile? Or are you outside of the faith, outside of the blessings of God, in that spiritual ultimate sense, are you one whom God will ultimately pour wrath out upon? This I can say again, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will never face the wrath of God. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus never turned anyone away who came to him. Truly, sincerely seeking help. Never. And he will never turn you away. Ever. If you come to him seeking help. Who are we, soldiers? Are we true Jews in the sense of blessed with believing Abraham? What have we done? What have we done? You realize why Jesus was on that cross? It was because of sin. It was because of sin. What have we done? We nailed Jesus to that cross in that sense. What have we done? We've rebelled against Jesus. We've rebelled against God. And every rebellion, every sin is to spit in the face of God. To spit in the face of Christ. It's to say, I am going to do my way, even though you've said that I must do your way. Every sin is an act in that sense of rebellion. Now, Yes, sins can be committed in ignorance, and so they're not an outward act of rebellion. But are they still sin? What did Jesus say from the cross? Can you think of, can you think of an indication of something Jesus said from the cross which indicates even if you don't know that you've sinned, it's still sin? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They still had to be forgiven even though they didn't know what they were doing. So we can't, we can't plead ignorance. We're still guilty. Even if we don't know that it's sin. But let's just walk through a few of the commandments for a moment. Think about this. The scriptures say in the commandments that we're to have no other gods before God. And it says that we are not to bow before any graven image. There's a, a word which we use to describe, it's a biblical word, false worship. It's the word idolatry. False worship is called idolatry. 
And it tells us in the book of Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Do you know what covetousness is? Children, do you know what it means to covet something? Coveting something means that you are desiring to have something that God says is not for you to have. It's basically it in a nutshell. Coveting something is desiring to have something that God says, nope, that's not for you. It may be something good, but it may belong to your brother or sister, and therefore it is not yours, and you're not to desire to have it. It may be something that's evil, and God says you should never want it. But the scriptures say that if we covet, we've committed idolatry. In other words, we have placed our desire for something God forbids above our desire to worship Him and bring Him glory, and so we have despised and dishonored Him. Anytime that we in our hearts exalt ourselves above what God says we ought to do, we are placing that thing in a place of greater prominence and greater desire than our desire for God. And that's idolatry. So let me ask us this. How many of us have ever committed idolatry? <laughs> be easier to say how many of us have not committed idolatry, wouldn't it? If you say that you have never committed idolatry, then you don't you either don't know what idolatry is or you're a liar. Because we have all coveted, we have all sinned against God in this. Taking the name of our God in vain. Oftentimes we think of this as when people say, Oh my God, and they say it in a flippant way, and I think that is a way that God's name is being used in a vain or an empty or a worthless way, but that's not the only way to take God's name in vain. We take God's name in vain, in essence, as believers, every time that we sin. Because we bear the name of God as His representatives, and when we, when we flock His commandments, and we say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want, we are bearing His name, albeit in an empty or a worthless way. And we are violating the commandment. If you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, but you're not a Christian and you know you're not in your heart, you are vilely and wickedly taking God's name in vain. Because you are taking that name upon yourself and saying to people, I am a representative of Jesus when you're not. So that's to use His name wrongly. To use His name wrongly. What about dishonoring parents? What have we done? Are there any of us that can say that we have kept the law perfectly? We haven't even worked through all the commandments. What about dishonoring parents? What have we done? Where are we at now? You as believers, okay, I've been making a lot of application to non-believers, but for us as believers, may the Holy Spirit work even through speaking about these things that 
God wants us to do out of love for the Lord Jesus. And if you realize that you're in a place right now where you are engaged in idolatry, repent. I beg of you, repent. And seek the Lord's forgiveness for that. Children, if you're in a place where you recognize in your heart you are dishonoring your parents, repent. Repent of that. Maybe you're dishonoring your parents with a roll of the eyes of your heart, even though you outwardly obey. You realize you can roll your eyes in your heart, right? You know what I'm talking about? Talking about mom or dad says, son, daughter, go do this, this, and this. And, yes, sir. And there you go, and you do it. But inside, you're saying, I wish I didn't have to do that. I wish he wouldn't say that to me. Boy, I tell you, when I'm old enough, I'm going to get out of here, and I'm going to be out from under authority, and I'm going to live it. Well, you'll never be out from under authority, let me tell you that. (laughs) Get used to it. You're never going to be in a place where you're out from under authority and ultimately you're under the authority of God. And you're despising the authority of God who has vested authority in your parents when you roll the eyes of your hearts when your parents tell you to do something. Believing children, what's your attitude towards your parents right now? What have you done and what are you doing? If you are an unbeliever, What have you done? What you have done deserves damnation. It does for all of us. Just one roll of the eyes of our hearts as children, when our parents say to do something that we ought to do, deserves the perpetual wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. Because, you know what? A good worker gets paid for their labor, right? In a job, if you work for somebody, in employment, you get paid. What does the Bible say that people who sin get paid? What do they deserve to be paid? The wages of sin is what? Death. And that's not talking about... That's part of it. But that's talking about eternal damnation in the context. Physical death will come... But then the Spirit lives on and then there will be a resurrection of the body. Unbelievers will be raised and they will be in a better position to be tormented in hell for all eternity because they will be in bodily form. And they will be able to feel and experience the torments of hell. Even the better for being in bodily form. Oh, this is a suffering thing. What have we done? What have we done? Murder. You say, oh, well, I've never, I've never murdered anyone. What did Jesus say? If you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered. Sexual immorality. Where are we at right now? And what have we done in regards to sexual immorality? Jesus says, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery. Where are we at right now and what have we done? 
This is one of the most prominent sins of the heart, especially among men today in this entire Western world. And any man in here will be honest with you and say, I've been tempted and I have to guard my eyes. I have to guard my heart. If there's any man that says, no, I never have to do that, then you are unique. There's no doubt about it. Perhaps you're a liar. I'm not going to call you that. But the fact of the matter is, what have we done? Look at everything the centurion did. He oversaw the crucifixion of Christ, but our sins put Christ on the cross. What have we done? And as we walk through the righteous dictates of God's law, we all stand condemned. And if righteousness comes by the law, we have no hope. Because no one can keep the law perfectly. And no one has kept the law perfectly. What have we done? We have overseen the crucifixion of Christ, hardened and rebellious. In our past, when we were unbelievers, for those who are saved, we have done this. We all stand deserving the wrath of God. What do we hear? Though, what do we hear? We hear Jesus saying, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We hear Jesus saying, Believe, and whosoever believes on me will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we hear Jesus saying, Bow before me, because all authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Follow me. Love me. Build your life on my teachings. Obey me. And we have heard, have we not, the preaching of the word. You've heard it. I'm preaching it. The word which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Look at look over there for a minute, Hebrews. And chapter four. You realize do you realize the context of this verse? How many of you have heard this verse before? The word of God is living and powerful, you know, sharper than any two-edged sword, you know, able to divide to the joints and marrow, you know. Familiar verse, right? Very familiar. It's the kind that you hear in a little clip on the Christian radio station or you see on a billboard or a pastor throws out there in passing reference, right? Do you know the context? Oftentimes we think of it in a positive context. Well, the word of God, there is my offensive weapon. It's sharp. It's powerful. I've got the word. I'm going to charge the enemy. That's not the context. Here's the context. The failure of the people in the wilderness because they rebelled and their carcasses fell in the wilderness. 
the promise of rest to those who will be faithful and who will not fall according to unbelief as those in the wilderness fell. Beginning in verse 11, then let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. It's a warning. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see the context? It's saying God's word will penetrate to your very soul and expose you. You stand exposed, open, and naked before the eyes of God. You can hide nothing from Him. That's the context. It's saying the word of God is used to pierce into that soul and bring conviction. And you will be judged by its righteous standard. That's the context. But we hear, even in the midst of that context, the call of Jesus. Come, come, believe. Come, accept my righteousness as yours. It is finished. Rest in me for salvation. And you will be with me in paradise at the end of your life on that earth. What do we see? What did he see? He saw the darkness. We saw the, we see the darkness caused by sin all around us, don't we? Flip on the news. Look at news sources on the internet. Are we not surrounded by the darkness and depravity of sin? Of course, with the news today and social media, we hear about every single little thing that happens the minute it happens. So we know about the shooting over here, the shooting over there, the stabbing over there, the kidnapping over there, the rape over there, the genocide over there. We know about all of it. But what is it a reminder of? The darkness and depravity of sin. It's because of sin that this all takes place. What do we see? Death, despair. But what is the hope? What do we see in the midst of this? Christ on the cross. And He died to redeem this world. He died to redeem even the physical creation, Romans chapter 8 says. What do we feel? Have we not every one of us felt the pangs of conscience? Children, have you ever felt guilty? Have you ever felt guilty? You knew what you did was wrong? Felt the guilt of sin? What about the need for peace? Desiring to have peace in your soul? We as human beings, we felt that, haven't we? Every single one of us. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. There's that desire to be at peace. To have peace in our souls. We have all felt at times the very shaking of our souls. As if it were an earthquake from within. But now the question to us all is what do we say? What do we say? 
What do, what do you say? What do I say? Children, what do you say? What is your testimony? Can you glorify God like the centurion did? Can you praise God? Or do you only care about yourself? Can you praise God by willingly and joyfully desiring to, out of love for Jesus, have a relationship with Him and then build your life on His teachings? Do you desire to do what Jesus wants you to do by honoring your parents and doing that which is right? What about... What about you? There is always a time for examination of the heart. In the life even of believers, there's always time for examination of the heart. Because we need to follow the admonition of Scripture. It was in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And we need one another. Because it says, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin will sing out to you. Come to me. Touch me. Taste me. I am beautiful. I am pleasant. I will make you happy. And then it stabs us in the throat. Or it poisons us from within and rots our bellies, right? We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What do we say? As believers, what do we say? We say Christ is righteous. We say Christ is the Son of God and we keep saying it all the days of our lives, right? There isn't any, well, I prayed the prayer, I'm good to go. And I can go do whatever I want and I'm okay. Brother Rick talked about it this morning. The extremes. There's legalism on one stream and there's licentiousness on the other. Legalism says, well, I can be saved by pulling myself up by my bootstraps and uh, making myself right with God. He has to accept me based on what I do. And then licentiousness, lawlessness can say... Well, Jesus paid it all, and so now I get to go and do whatever I want. The passages like this in Hebrews say, no, you can't. The evidence of one who is a child of God is that they will continue to have faith. They've once believed, and they're always believing. Once saved, always being saved. Once repented, always repenting. That's the evidence of a true child of God. Is that you? Is that you? Some of you you at times, and I've done this too, we wrestle with assurance. Am I really saved? Here's the question. Do we keep acknowledging Christ? Do we keep believing in Christ? Do we keep repenting of sin? Then there's hope. That is evidence. We keep saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And we keep clinging. And then we know that we're holding on to him because he's holding on to us. 
We've not yet apprehended. But we're pressing on. Christ is our hope. Where are we today? Can we proclaim with the centurion? Can we change the wording just a little bit? Say, truly, this man is the Son of God. Can we say, truly, this is a righteous man. The God-man. And can we bring glory to our God in doing so? I pray, my prayer is that every single one of you here will do this if you have not yet to this point. Or that for the majority of you, that you'll keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this till the day that you say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, give us grace for this. Christ is worthy of all glory and honor. We desire to give it to him today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's look to number 216 in the blue hymnal. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Number 216.